Hello, Stephen Backhouse here. If you are a listener to the Tent Podcast, it will be no surprise to you to learn that I love the Gospel of Mark. I often teach from it, and I refer to it all the time. This summer, from the 11th to the 15th of July, I have been invited by the Vancouver School of Theology to run one of their summer school courses. The course is called A Political Theology Bible Study of Mark's Gospel. Previous biblical studies or political theology knowledge is not expected or required. The course will be held online, and you can find out all the information you need by visiting vst.edu and searching for summer school, or by simply following the link provided in the show notes to this episode. I look forward to seeing you later this summer. Curtis Holtzen in the tent today. Curtis is a professor of philosophy and theology at Hope International University in Southern California. He's also the author of The God Who Trusts, a book that uses open and relational theology to focus on the issue of trust and how God trusts us and trusts the world in God's relationship to creation. I really enjoyed talking with Curtis. He's an old friend and somebody who I've been wanting to get on the tent for quite a while. You will hear all about it in the conversation to follow. And while I have you here, this seems a good time to remind listeners to Tent Talks that we have a Patreon page. If anything we've made has been useful or interesting to you, please consider becoming a supporter of what we do. We really can't do any of this without you, and your support helps us cover the costs it takes to make this podcast on a weekly basis. Patrons will have access to lots of extra material, including high-level Bible studies, extra talks, and discounts for upcoming classes and courses. It's a really good way to show your support to what we're doing, and a good way to find fellow travelers. I will put all the information for a Patreon, as well as for Curtis's book, in the show notes. Thank you, and enjoy the conversation. the first time we've had you on the tent as we were discussing just before pressing record i recorded an interview with you two years ago a year and a half ago what how long ago was that yeah it was like a year ago oh man and we had a good chat about your book which i'm holding here the god who trusts and we talked about trump and you you were a signatory for the christians against trump movement and trump trumpism trumpism right there you go And, and we had all this chat and then Something happened. I can't quite remember what it was. There was some sort of you got your interview got put on the back burner for something, and that, that and I kept wanting to re- re- release it. And I was like, ah, oh. you know what? Rather than just ex- apologize for an old interview, I'm just going to phone up Curtis. And we're just going to do a new one anyway. So there we are. Well, look, I'm I'm super happy just to chat with you again. You're you're one of my favorite people to talk to, and and I do hope that uh, we can run into each other at some AAR in the future and uh yeah chat in person about Kierkegaard and 
Leonard Cohen and all things theology. All that good stuff. I remember going to a great Mexican restaurant with you in Santa Fe. Yes. Having a good chat. And yeah, that's good. And are you you are friends with Michael Burdett as well? Is that right? Is that the yeah. connection? So Mike and I are friends. Michael is a professor at Nottingham University now. Yeah, he uh I knew him through a couple mutual friends and the couple times I went to Oxford just to visit. I uh, bent his arm to be a tour guide a couple times. Oh, very good. Very so, good. And then, we, again, we bumped into each other at a couple events. And so he's a good guy. So we've got we got some connections. And then I always read, of course, I always, uh, when I oh, crack open a book, I always go straight to the acknowledgments. And I say, oh, who does, who does Curtis know that I know? And uh, you thank a few people that I'm friends with, including uh, Roberto Servent. So that was... Yeah. He's a Kierkegaard social political theologian. So we must get Roberto on the, the podcast one day. Absolutely. Well. Absolutely. But but you, Curtis, so you are a philosophy and theology professor at Hope. Tell us about Hope, first of all. What is the context uh, of all the different colleges and universities in Southern California? What There's does Hope a lot do? Of them. Yeah. Yeah. Hope International. Uh, previously, it was Pacific Christian College and then about 20 years ago or so, a little more, it became a university and took on another name. And it is a uh, small liberal arts college, uh, about 1,500 students. Uh, that includes online and traditional undergrad. And it's part of the restoration movement, uh, which is Stone Campbell movement. So that's their kind of distinction. And uh, for anybody who knows about Stone Campbell movement, there's the Church of Christ, there's the Disciples of Christ, and then there's this kind of in-between uh, third movement called the Independent Christian Churches. And that's what, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sexy name, uh, but it's, it's what uh, hope is a part of. And so um, they, they offer degrees in biblical studies and, and various ministry, but then they also have psychology and they have um, English degree and, and educational degrees and business. And it's a typical small Christian uh, liberal arts school that's fighting to, to make its niche to, to, be, to be an educational center. And so some of the theology is kind of unique in that in that it's uh, part of Stone Campbell movement. Are, are people, I mean, are people wanting Christian education these days? Like what? Let's do a state of the nation. I mean, what, what do you feel? How long have you been working in this field, first of uh, all? So 24 years. Okay, all right. I've been since 1998. Yeah. Do You know, that's, that's hard to say. It, it seems what that- What kind of trends have you seen in your 24 years of- of doing this work what, what what can you tell us is happening to the state of christian education so this is you know i have not done official studies on this this is going to be very anecdotal that's all we do here it's, well good emotion raw emotion anger and knee-jerk reactions let's go for it that's there all we, we go there we go you know it seems to me that a, a lot of that, that Christian education is spe specifically in ministry and biblical studies, it seems that it's waned. Uh, it, it, it's not as popular now as it was. And my, my guess, my take on that is because a lot of churches uh, are wanting to hire from within and they care less about a formal education. They care more about 
someone you know who has personality or or someone who who can lead and so the idea of a, a well-rounded liberal arts education is less uh, important uh, or you have churches that are starting their their own educational sort of uh, degree systems and I, I don't know if they're colleges I don't know if they're accredited a kind of in-house leadership training programs and that kind right of right so you you have that on the one end on the on the other side you still have these very big uh, Christian uh, universities like Grand Canyon or uh, Liberty University that have really expanded in their online degrees and and they've just kind of blown up and so uh, my my guess my my knee-jerk reaction is that uh, very conservative schools are doing pretty good and then the the more kind of liberal schools are doing pretty good, maybe maybe less so in in the ministry uh, sort of thing. Uh, and then the the kind of middle ground, it's you know it's a struggle. You have you have some of the the smaller schools that that are just you know fighting for for tuition and and fighting for uh, gifts and and that sort of stuff. And so I'm I'll be honest, hope has some of its own struggles. I don't know if it's unique to hope. I don't think it is when I talk to other people. So there, there's always the the worry about, you know, are we going to get the students and are we going to get the the gifts that we need? Are we going to be able to? What what institution doesn't spend most of its time thinking about itself, right? How right. Self going. Yeah. Right. What about right. the from the from the teaching of the hearts and minds point of view? I mean, as a philosopher. What are you, was there a difference the, the kinds of uh, of hopes and fears you encountered 24 years ago with with students? Have you noticed any change in the last quarter century? You know, my uh, my sense is, is so probably 20 years ago or so I had to do a lot of uh, deconstructing with students in the sense of they were they were very conservative. They had this kind of lockstep view of of what of what the Bible is, who God is, this sort of stuff. And so I'd spend half of half of my teaching kind of unpacking with the students so that they could they could relearn. But it was because they had very firm sort of beliefs. Now my sense is it's it's kind of uh, the script has has flipped a bit. And so now I have a lot of students that are in this kind of, and I don't want to beat up on postmodernism, but this kind of postmodern that everything goes, there is no right or wrong you know, what, whatever your favorite flavor of, of philosophy or thinking is, that's good for you. Mine's going to be different. And so before I had to, you know, help people kind of unpry their, their hand around their, their beliefs. Now I'm trying to get them to, to hold on to any sort of belief. And, and it's a, it's an interesting transition. I don't, I don't know if it's a Southern California thing or if it's worldwide, I don't know, but that's, that's been a unique sort of change for me. What's in the water? What, what what's bringing about this change? Do you think? Boy, now you're now you're asking me questions. I'm I'm not sure. I'm I'm yeah. I'm of the mindset to answer. Are these students coming out of the evangelical uh, families and the evangelical cultures? So that may be some of the change. Is that uh, at Hope at least? Uh, it, it seems that we're getting uh, less students that have a 
real secure church sort of upbringing. And so they're, they're still coming to a school that, that is uh, a Christian tradition and a Christian-based education. And so there are students who, who want that, but I'm, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know if there's a change in what churches are teaching. I don't know if it's just a completely different part of the pond we're fishing from with our, with our students. I, I mean, I, both of them were a challenge. Uh, I don't necessarily like one of the challenges more than the other. Both of them are, are interesting, and it's nice at the end of the semester if you've gotten them to, to think a little bit differently on, on some of these issues. But I don't know, maybe it's, a, maybe it's just a cultural change that we're, that we're going through, or the, uh, the evangelical church itself is, is kind of changing in some of these ways. I, I don't know. I mean, we talked about, we mentioned the word Trumpism, and you're signatory to Christians against Trumpism. Is there, is there part of the culture wars? I mean, over here in the UK, we, we look at America and we just, we feel like it's all Christians always militating against the liberals and uh, always fearfully, shrilly, angrily uh, going with whatever biggest bully will get them power. That's the, that's the stereotype. And obviously there are voices we can look to that affirm that stereotype. But is that something you're seeing amongst the young people in, in, in the classrooms as well? What does it look like? The culture wars from your point of view so thankfully i've i've not had to really butt heads against that in the classroom if there are some students who are that way i i don't know i i, I haven't experienced it my uh my time in the classroom and online teaching uh, i've been very lucky to have students that are receptive to some some different ways of thinking i try not to get too political uh in the classroom just for various reasons, but in the last semester, we uh, I, I taught a couple sections of critical thinking, and it's hard not to use some uh, some examples from Trump when talking about logical fallacies. And you know, his his tweets were amazing for uh, teaching logical fallacies. But uh, so, but my experience is at least at least at 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 Hope, uh, the students aren't. Uh, over the top in in uh, political sort of you know lockstep with the right wing conservative. Uh, again, we we may have some students who hold those beliefs, but they've been uh, pretty open to discussing some various approaches. That's interesting. I, I you say you're not political, but I w one of the reasons I liked your your book, and I want to talk with you a bit about the God who trusts is just the. Well, I want you to take me to school a bit because this you, you, you talk about relational or open open theology and relational theology, which to me has a political angle. It might be small p, not, not partisan, but if you are fundamentally thinking about God as the being or as the ground of all relationship and you really drill into what that means, then to me that has a huge significance for when we talk about our social imagination. Right. So I, I, I would love to. So first of all, are you a, are you an open theologian, a, a, a relational theologian? Tell us what that is. Yeah, so I am an uh, open and relational okay. uh, theologian. And I am so because it's it's what makes most sense to me as I scratch and kick and bite and try to figure out who God is and, and what this all means. This is this is the, the, the territory that has made most sense to me. But 
for anyone who, who may not know, open theism is this idea that, uh, first of all, the open relates to the future and that the future is open to real possibilities. Uh, that the future is not closed, it's not determined either by God's will or God's foreknowledge or uh, mechanical, material determinism, anything like that, that the future is open to, to real possibility, uh, an open future, that God has to work with beings that have genuine free will, that can make decisions, and that in working with, with persons uh, that are free to make choices, God has to interact with them in a relational way. God has to uh, make some changes. God has to uh, respond to what humans do in this, this path. And so uh, the relational aspect of it, uh, all open theists that I know of begin with, with the notion that God is uh, first and foremost love and that love begins uh, with with a sense of freedom for the other, that it is uh, not controlling. And then from there, uh, God has some some plans that God wants to accomplish. And uh, so to accomplish these plans, God has to work with other persons, not just over and above them or something to that that effect. So what's the what's the opposite of the open theist? Like what does the do we call that classical theism or what what what's the model that you'd work with if you that you're that you're working against yeah so my experience is is most most people at at the church level don't don't understand classical theism versus you know open theism this sort of this sort of thing i mean at at the intellectual academic level it's going to be betting uh butting heads against classical theism the idea that god is is transcends time that god doesn't experience duration that all things are pre-planned and predetermined and but but at the church level i think what most people how most people phrase this is that there's a reason for everything and the reason is is god did it yeah we're pushing or i'm pushing back against some of these ideas uh, mainly because some of the ideas that god did it is heart-wrenching when you when you hear about you know some sort of horrible accident or some horrible event and you hear that you know somebody wants to comfort themselves or others by saying well god had a plan for this and that's not always the best so open theism is is really trying to say that that god and, and humanity are in a uh, relationship in which we work together to accomplish uh, what god uh, desires in this world and that our desires should line up with God's desires. I wonder whether it comes from a place of saying like love, love really means love. Like we don't, we don't have to, you don't start with human love and then say, well, think of everything you think about love. Now forget that God is God's love is completely different. Or when you think of God's goodness, you don't say, well, what, what would it mean for a human to be good? All right, forget that God's goodness is completely different. <laughs> uh, feel, I feel like open theism is more an attempt to make words mean what they actually mean. Well, yeah, that's a good way of saying it. At, at some level, you know, we, we have to work with what we know. And, and our experiences of, of what is love and so our, our loving relationships with our friends and our children, our parents, our, our spouses, uh, these are the sort of things that we can then uh, begin to explore and examine 
and say, okay, well, if, if these are good, how might God's love be like these? And, and this is not counter to what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus would say things like, you know, a father will do this, but if a father does this, God even does greater things. And uh, it, it's not unusual to, to take what we do and, and make an analogy of it and try to say, okay, God's love is like this in many ways. But then there's always the caveat that uh, it'll be slightly different. That's, that's what's interesting about metaphors and analogies is you want to say that they're like one another, but they're not exactly like one another. And so I, I try to argue that God's love uh, in a lot of ways, and in some ways that we should be more mindful of, that God's love is like the love we have uh, for our own children or for our spouse or for our friends. Where, I mean, you, you, you point out in your book, uh, uh, you often you talk about sort of control, like God is not a control, like God's love means God is not controlling. There's not a micromanagement element. Right, right. And that's a, that's a popular theme in, in open theism. What I do in my book that's, that's maybe unique is I try to explain why God would not control or, or what it means for God to not control. And so you have, you have uh, Tom Ord, who, who really emphasizes the, the uncontrolling love of God, or you have John Sanders, who really emphasized that uh, God takes risks. And so I wanted to explore the idea of, okay, so God, God takes some risks, or God does not control those who God loves. But, but what does this mean? What's, a, what's another way to really talk about that? When I really explored this idea, what came to mind to me is that God trusts us, or, or to put it in, in uh, another way of saying it, God has faith in humanity. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about this, man. What do you mean? All right, let's let's go philosophical. I'm here. I'm talking to a philosopher, so this I'm in trouble here. I'm on thin ice here, because uh, we're talking. Uh, if you're talking about power and time as well, like if you're talking about the future, I guess I guess what we're talking about is this, the the classical uh, attributes of God: that divinely omnipotent and omniscient. Right. So one of the things that I I feel like you're addressing here, or is that God being all powerful doesn't mean he can do everything. It means he can do everything that it is possible to do. God can't know. God doesn't know everything. God knows what it is possible to know. Yeah. As I, as I say, God knows all true things. And it is not possible to know the future. As I see it, uh, there are some statements about the future that are neither true nor false. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so God is, God is not ignorant for not knowing these. Uh, it just means that there are some things about the future because it, being, because it is open that cannot be known because these things have no, no truth value to them. And then this is where trust comes in. Because I think God so. is trusting the beings he's in relationship with to participate to do the right thing i mean where 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 is the tell me about trust here how does trust work what's divine trust look like yeah so i think divine as we were saying a minute ago i think divine trust in a lot of ways looks like human trust i think i think god desires uh, for us to to value what god values to behave as god wants us to behave uh, to bring about a world that is well, now we can get into the political side of it to bring about a world that 
that is just, that is uh, kind, that is compassionate, that is uh, caring for one another. And so, but God has, has given us the power and the ability to, to do these sort of things, to either do good or to do harm. And because God desires that we do good, but that we have the ability to, to do harm, to thwart some of God's plans, uh, at some level, God trusts us to do what God has created us to do and, and to be. Now, I, I'm not saying that God constantly trusts everybody. Uh, there are times in which God may look at my life, uh, have certain plans for what, I, what God wants me to do, and just doesn't necessarily trust me to do that. Uh, or has some doubts about uh, whether I will come through with that. So I, I would argue God may not always trust us, but I think God always desires to trust us. And I think that's because uh, to really love intimately is to, to trust. I, I don't understand how someone could genuinely love their children, but never trust them or to genuinely love their spouse, but never trust their spouse, or to have any sort of a, a friendship, but not trust that friend. And, and at any level say, well, I, I have this, this deep love for my spouse. I, I don't trust her, but I love her fully. I, those, those, are, those are clashing ideas in my mind. And so trying to understand how God could fully our free, free beings seems to me that you got to have the third element, which is God trusts us or desires to trust us. So where do we see this working out? I mean, I know neither of us are biblical fundamentalists, but we have got a data set, which is the scriptures. Sure. I, do you, you know, where do we see this kind of happening in the, the Christian conception of God? Well, I, first of all, I see it in the opening chapters of Genesis, uh, the, especially chapters two and three, you have this, this story of, of God creating this garden and then telling them uh, they may freely eat from, from any tree, but not to eat of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and there's maybe some different ways to, to interpret that. Of course there are. Uh, but my reading of it is it's, it's a trust story. Uh, God trusts them not to uh, partake of this this tree, and so this is this this kind of opening story that really kind of sets the tone, I think, for the rest of Scripture that God has has trusted uh, this couple uh, to do what what God has asked, and of course they don't follow through, and so there's some some backlash in the New Testament. I, I was surprised at how many statements about trust there were in the New Testament. That, that I hadn't picked up until I really started unpacking this. You know, you get, you get places where in, in Galatians where Paul says that he was entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles while Peter was entrusted with the gospel to the Jews. And so you think about that for a moment and you're like, well, entrusted by who? By who? Yeah. Who did it? Oh. Yeah. It seems none other than, than God. Yeah. Uh, you have in back to the Old Testament, you have in Numbers where, God says that Moses was entrusted with the whole house of, of Israel. You, you get there's some other places as well where you have uh, Paul talking about that, that he's been entrusted. You get 
in 2 Corinthians that the church has been entrusted with the, the ministry of reconciliation. And then even in the, the parable of the talents, which is uh, so often unpacked as this sort of the, these gifts that we have, and that's the emphasis. But, but it's really this interesting story about this master who entrusts these servants, uh, and then one of them doesn't trust the master, and then that's where it all goes awry. It's a breakdown of that mutual co-laboring type experience, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so uh, you, you get this sense in which, uh, you know, if we, if we read the, the parable from a very plain reading, uh, if we read the parable that the master is God, here, here's God entrusting these servants and wanting the servants to, to trust God. And so to take risks with what God has, has given, and then we get the one servant who you know, just buries it and accuses the master of all sorts of things. And, and that, that destroys the relationship. But in the end, you know, it's uh, well done, my good and trustworthy servant. And that's, you know, that's, I think what we all want to hear, that this is what I've heard dozens of sermons on is, you know, when we enter the pearly gates and, and we see God, we want to hear God say, well done, my good and trustworthy servant. And want to feel that God has uh, has trusted us. And so I, I hear those sort of statements, but I don't hear a lot of people really taking them to the fullest of what that means. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, when, it's, it's uh, reading your book. I confess that I, I last read it <laughs> a year ago when we talked. So right. It's less. Me, uh, me too, by the way. Yeah, you too. It's, you've just moved house and you, you, you showed me your copy that you had to dig out of a box as well. So yeah, so anyway, it's, it's less clear in my mind. But I do remember, and just leafing it through just now, is reminding myself that actually it's this isn't a matter of reading into the text something you wish was there i saw it the other way around it's you bringing out saying look this is actually all throughout this is the mode in which jesus operates for example and and it's just that our common imagination about god hasn't been affected or hasn't been transformed by this oh this mode of being in the first place like all this language jesus says i no longer want to call you servants but friends for example and that kind of thing that to me right. is a movement of right because he shares with them sharing, yeah trusting yeah which yeah. is a direct move away from the micromanaging lording it over i don't want to be like the gentiles who lord their power over others instead i Absolutely. want you to lay down your life for your friends and those kind of ideas which yeah. to me is like oh yeah that's if if Jesus is the representation or the revelation of God's self, well, then that's, I no longer call you servants, but friends, right? right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, as I was saying before, I don't know how we can have a, you know, a really deep friendship with someone if we never trust them. Yeah. If we're constantly suspicious of someone, we're never going to uh, take the risk and be intimate or to share with, with someone certain things about ourselves we're we're always going to be looking at them you know with suspicion and that's just not the picture i see of of jesus in the gospels he's he seems to entrust a lot more people than maybe i would do you do again it's it's been a while since i've read it do you do any work on the the word for faith in the new testament pistos i do a little bit of work on that and mainly just that it can be translated in a variety of ways it can be translated as belief it can be translated as trust yeah uh it can have uh this this idea of of kind of commitment and, and devotion or loyalty and so 
I, I, I have one chapter that I talk about the mosaic of faith and that I uh, speak about the, the various ways in which faith can be understood and try to break it down. And so the, the, the book's title was originally going to be The Faith of God. Yeah. But the, the editors thought that may be confusing, it, it, you know, it, 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 objective, subjective sort of thing. And so they went with The God Who Trusts. Yeah. And I, I like that title. Well, it's a nice play on the God who risks as well, isn't it? So, yeah, and there's there's quite a few books out there, the God who, and so I'm I'm happy to be in that that corral of, of books like that. So, one last thing I would I would add as far as the the biblical witness, and so uh, this will probably cause some biblical scholars to cringe a bit, but one of the things I I also do is I, I take the first John statement that God is love. And then I try to read it against what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. I ask myself, okay, so it, if it's true of what John says, that God is love, and then here's Paul unpacking what love is. And I try to ask, you know, do these two things go together? Can we say that God is all these things? Well, Paul ends that with saying that, that love always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. And so the the idea behind this here is we can say God is love and that love by its very nature and always is a one way to translate. It, it should be exceedingly or without measure. That love trusts without measure that God or that love hopes beyond measure. I think we can say these same things uh, about God. But again, this is, this is being more canonical than, you know, most biblical theologians really want you to be or biblical scholars, not. Yeah. Not putting John and Paul together. In well, there is ways, something, but... there is some interesting Bible work. I'm interested in the word uh, pistis, the, the faith as fidelity or faith as allegiance, because obviously it has, it does have a, a socio-political vibration to it. That when Jesus has asked people to have faith in him or believe in him, he's there probably hearing it as saying, have allegiance to me or even be patriotic towards me. Right. It's so it isn't like a faith in the kind of, invisible future it's more like a do you trust me right now so so jesus is asking people do you trust me but then there's some interesting times where he then has faith in others he'll show his allegiance to other people so famously the woman who is bleeding for 12 years when he when he heals her he then publicly identifies with her he says daughter your pistos has healed you your so he identifies with her by calling her daughter and including him into his family because she was willing to come forward and be seen to be with him and it's this mutual faith and he has faith in a woman who'd been you know an unclean woman for 12 years right and so I just find some of that I found some of that really when I was reading your book I was like yeah that actually this makes sense this is a theology built on the actions that people recorded about how Jesus what he was like which has socio-political implications <laughs> absolutely absolutely you know we partner up with people that we were committed to people we have allegiances to to people that we trust and so we would never join a political movement that we didn't trust we would never join uh, a, a spiritual movement that we that we didn't trust or at least we didn't have certain hopes in uh, i think there really is a lot of socio-political sort of uh, implications that this that this book has and so 
yeah, I don't, I don't want to downplay the, the political aspect, uh, but you got to be honest, I, I wasn't thinking, you know, I, was, I wasn't thinking governmental politics. What does it do to uh, the, the passability of God? So can God be disappointed? Yes. Right. I think so. Uh, I, I think God can and should be rightly disappointed. Uh, if God is not disappointed in some of the things individuals or communities do, then I'm not sure God is all that trustworthy. Uh, but here's, here's a nice, here's a nice bit about the, I, I did a sermon on this book. Oh, good grief. Maybe two years ago now, it was right before the pandemic. And I, I, I did a sermon and I preached and I had a gentleman come up to me afterwards and say that he was, he was quite helped by what I said, because he had always thought about that God's disappointment in him meant that God uh, loved him less. And so he would do something wrong or he would sin in some way. And disappointment meant that God loved him less. After me talking about the trust of God, he realized that, that God never loves us any less. God may trust us less. God may be less willing to entrust us with, with certain things. Yeah. But the love of God is constant. And it's the love of God that, that motivates God to seek ways to trust us, to, to maybe trust us first and to, uh, to demonstrate that sort of love in that way. And so the, the, the disappointment aspect here is I, I think God can be disappointed in us, but I don't, I don't think we should ever translate that as God loves us any less. Again, using an analogy that we're all used to from our own relationships as parents or spouses, right? Yeah, I, I, there, there were lots of times in which my daughter frustrated me or disappointed me or, or, or something like that. But yeah, we, we never love our children any less, but I was maybe less apt the next time to give her the car keys or to let her have the house by herself, something like that. I'm reminded of don't be too quick to, to be a leader of other people, because if you've been entrusted with, you know, a, 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 a lot, then you're responsible for a lot. And to those who are entrusted with a little, then a little will, will be demanded of them. But if you're entrusted with a lot, then a lot will be demanded of you. There does seem to be a, a scale of moving up and down towards uh, right. whether whether you are uh, how, at what level you are engaged in laboring with towards the, the ways of God, right? Yes. Yeah. There's this there's a sense in which, and again, I don't know the mechanics of it. I don't know how it plays out in a day-to-day -day life, but I, I think there are certain things that, that God may entrust me with. And if I prove trustworthy, maybe there'll be more things that I'm, that I'm entrusted with. And if I prove disloyal or unfaithful, maybe some of those things may be, may be taken from me. Is there uh, a central task? Is, do you think there's a, is there a central... Of what God is... Yeah, a central in task in our, our, our purpose. Uh, purpose is like a buzzword these days. Everybody, all institutions and groups want to know their purpose. Right. Well, that's been, who was it? Rick Warren? Oh, the purpose-driven life. Maybe this is oversimplicated. I love how you overcomplicated the word oversimplification. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Only it's, a philosopher. It's, uh, it's early on my <laughs> Um, I, I really, I really think that the God's desire was to, to bring about as much good as possible. 
I think that's why God creates is to, to bring about opportunities for greater good yeah. to exist. And so uh, our task is to bring about as much good as we can to, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to keep it simple. I'm, I'm going to do what is good and bring about good and good can come through relationships and good can come through creative avenues and, and good can come uh, from enjoying nature, all sorts of ways in which uh, good can come. But I, I think that's, the, I think that's the purpose. I mean, is it something so elegant about, and so right about saying you always should endeavor to leave a place better than you found it right you know we always get yeah. to, we always get to add goodness to to whatever it is we we're in or what we're doing right yeah and if you if you can't do that at least don't leave it worse yeah i think about i think about the various times i'd gone to uh summer camps and there were signs everywhere that said uh leave nothing but footprints take nothing but photographs right I thought, you know, that's a, that's a pretty, pretty uh, wise statement there when, when it comes to, when it comes to nature and uh, maybe sometimes the best good we can do is just leave something alone. It does come back. I mean, you mentioned Genesis, right? I mean, the, the whole much abused concept of dominion, which of course, mm-hmm. when, when God gives dominion to the humans, it's not to rape and pillage, it's to steward, it's to care for, it's right. to tend, right? And dominion, yeah. we don't, humans then instantly started to act the way they think God acts, which is like a big bully back to Donald Trump again. Uh, When in fact, God's like, yeah, I do want you to act the way I act, which is always serving, always patient, slow to anger. Uh, You can crucify me even on a cross. Like I'm submitting. This is what dominion looks like. It submits and it waits and it's patient. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I like that. But that goes right even back to Genesis right there. Like the, the, the image of God in man is one of tending and, uh, and caring and co-laboring. Right. To be, yeah, this viceroy to be a, a representative ambassador yeah. uh, sort of figure. And so maybe I'm belaboring this point, but uh, again, you, you don't give that sort of, uh, that sort of power to someone you don't trust. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, when you talk, when you spoke before about omnipotence and God having all the power that's, that's possible, I think one of the, the ways in which God demonstrates trust is by giving us some power over God, that God has given yeah. us uh, power to, to harm things that God cares about. And so to give that sort of power to, to individuals, uh, to me, demonstrates a, a, a trust. There's probably something there of the kenosis from Philippians 2 as well, I would imagine. I think that's right. I unpack that a little bit when I talk about in the last chapter of the book. I, I try to uh, explore the, the relationship between uh, God the Son and God the Father and, and how their relationship would be one of, of trust. I, I think that makes most sense in, in understanding a, a canonic uh, Christology, but but also, you know, some would say that that the whole creation is a, an act of uh, can, uh, a canonic act of, of God emptying. So, yeah, m- making space, withdrawing His power to make space for other people to have power. It's yeah. an act of creation itself. You're creating the space in which flourishing is possible. You know, right, right, right. Hey, where does uh, what what kind of 
if people are interested in open theology and relational theology, like what, what other people are you in conversation with? Like, tell us a little bit about the, the wider world. Obviously, we're going to recommend The God Who Trusts to anyone. Wow. Published by IVP, 2019, late 2019. Late 2019. Uh, where else, uh, what, what other kind of uh, conversations is this book a part of? So I, I, are you asking more for, for names? Yeah, yeah. This okay. is a, an attempt to teach. You're a teacher. Come on, teach. Teach us. There we go. Uh, so there's, there's quite a few names. And, and you asking me this, I'm going to leave out some important ones. I, I know that's going to be oh, it's not It's not the Oscars. You're not trying to thank. That's right. <laughs> You're not going to get. That's right. Yes. It would be awesome if you started playing me off with some music as I uh, <laughs> got about four names in. But uh, probably the the most prolific voice right now is Tom Ord. Okay. Uh, he Past has, guest on this podcast. Sure, sure. And uh, but he is he's one of one of if not the leading voice in open and relational theology right now. I'm reading a manuscript of his that uh, a book that's going to be coming out very soon. Okay. Um, Although by the time this podcast's out, it's probably going to be out already. But well, it's going to be another two years, Curtis. You do know that, that right? <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. Uh, I'm sure it'll age well. Uh, so Tom Ward, some of the uh, some of the 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 OGs. You have Rick Rice, who uh, has has a book that came out uh, last year called the The Future of Open Theism. Okay. And you have uh, John Sanders, who uh, recently retired, but uh, the God who risks is uh, a very important work uh, in the the field of open theism, and and uh, he was kind enough to write the foreword for for my book. Uh, I remember about ten years ago running into John and just asking him, "You talk about God risks, why why didn't you ever talk about God having faith?" And he was just very honest and said, "Never occurred to me." Maybe so somebody we, should write that book. That's what that's what he said. Yeah. And he encouraged me on several occasions. This book should have come out a decade ago. Uh, but but uh, John is there, and uh, but there's a couple books on. Uh, Greg Boyd is in that. Greg Boyd kind of swims oh, in those waters, doesn't he? Oh, God, yes, yeah. Greg Boyd is a very key thinker. Yeah, yeah. in uh, open and relational theism, he's done a lot with trying to understand. Uh, the cross and the nature of the Bible and trying to understand these things from uh, from an open and relational perspective. Yeah. There's a book out that, that came out ooh, last year. And again, I think the title is uh, Leadership and, and Open and Relational Theology. Okay. And there's, uh, good grief, 60 authors in there oh, wow. that are doing uh, short bits uh, on leadership. Uh, from an open and relational perspective. And so if if somebody's, and again, I mangled the, the title of the book because uh, I did not study for this pop quiz, but uh, th there are a lot of good names out there. And, yeah. uh, and so there's, it's, it's you know, it it's an up and coming uh, theological perspective. 30 years ago, uh, it would have, it was met with a lot of disdain. Yeah. And now it's it's recognized as a voice worth considering, even if uh, one disagrees, it, it can't be dismissed anymore. It can't be written off. Yeah. And so 
I'll say this again from my own perspective. I'm I'm an open theist in the sense of it's it's the approach that makes most sense to me. It's not that I think it's the only way that makes sense. It's just the the way that makes most sense to me. And I I like to be in dialogue with people and talk about what makes sense to them and why I struggle to understand you know God from the the classical or the typical evangelical. It's it. It has a moral, it kind of has a moral sanity about it as well, which I, I imagine if people are going through a, a, a deconstruction phase where they're unclenching themselves from that kind of uh, reformed evangelical classical view of God as the hyper controlling uh, megalomaniac type God, <laughs> I imagine that right. a, a book like this uh, would be one that really helps perhaps in the reconstruction journey of saying oh, there's other ways out to think about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I hope so. Actually cleaves probably closer to the original words and life of Jesus, for example, than, I, than some of these visions so. I, that are being let go of. I mean, I, I, I wrote the book mostly to talk about a, a theology of trust, of divine trust, and a theology of divine trust for me makes most sense from a from an open perspective. I, I I wasn't necessarily trying to sing the sing the praises of open theism. I was mm. trying to make the argument that that God is uh, a being that we have a relationship with where there's mutual trust. But in order to make sense of that, open theism is the the avenue that that allows that to happen. Classical theism yeah. and divine trust wouldn't wouldn't work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the book is first and foremost about divine trust. And I make that work with open theism. So where can listeners go if they want to find out more about your work and, and, and your writing? Where would you send people to? Uh, they can find me on Facebook. They can find me on Twitter. Uh, if you want something altogether strange and different, I actually have an ice cream review page on Instagram. No way. I'm going to have to go and find that. Yeah, you know, you can't write about theology all the time. And so sometimes you need to talk about one of God's greatest creations, and that's ice cream. Okay, I'm going to be putting that in the show notes as well, uh, (laughs) as well as a link to The God Who Trusts, which was published by IVP. But Curtis, thank you so much for coming back to the tent. I apologize for for so cruelly leaving you hanging a few years ago. I'm glad you got the opportunity. I got the opportunity to to see you and chat with you again. You can erase this one and we'll do it again in a couple well, weeks. I'd, I'd be okay with that. Uh, I love it. Well, hopefully I'll see you one day at some fancy American Academy of Religion or something like that. We'll, we'll I hope so. Or hopefully next time, next time we make it to the UK, I will definitely take a, a trip south of London. Oh, that would be wonderful. Well, good luck in California. Uh, I hope Thank you enjoy you. sunny California while I look out at the uh, the rainy, drizzly February weather outside my house. <laughs> I'll do my I'll do my best, and I'll I'll say a little prayer that you stay dry. Wonderful, Curtis. Thank you very much. We'll see you again. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune, and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.